Take your Bibles and go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We are making our way through the book of Hebrews. And really the, the text that we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks is chapter 9 to chapter 10, verse 18. I think that's the whole textual unit, the whole train of thought. But for this morning... We're going to primarily seek to look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. So let me read those verses. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod, which abutted, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing their mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now... Verse 6, now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, but the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Verse 10, Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, Sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I believe there are some notes to my left or right. There might be a few more left over there. Let me pray and then we'll get into God's word. Father, as we come into this passage, I pray that you would give me the grace to teach in a clear manner and that I and we would not get bogged down but would understand what your word is saying and be convicted and be brought closer to you, Lord. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Have you ever felt that you were in a foreign land Have you ever been to a foreign land before? 
I don't mean like England. Maybe you could go to England and feel foreign, but have you ever been to a place, maybe even here in the U.S., and just felt absolutely foreign? When I went to India my very first time, I felt that I was in a different world. This was in 1988, I think, or 1989. I felt that I was just on a different planet because it was so different. The, the sights, the smells, the, the sound, even the, the lights on the street at night were so different that for a long time, every night, I had dreams, nightmares, because it was just so absolutely foreign and different and odd to me. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been in a situation like that before? I know some of you had, have been. When I read parts of the book of Hebrews, I feel like I'm a foreigner. When I read Hebrews 9 and 10 or the book of Leviticus, I can feel completely odd, like a foreigner. Especially the further I get in chapter 9 and even in chapter 10, and the sense of yeah, rules and regulations and, and tabernacle, but also blood, 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 blood. And then you keep going, and it's blood and blood and blood. I, I think in these two chapters or a chapter and a half, the word blood is used more in, in this chapter and a half than anywhere else in the New Testament. Only the book of Leviticus would have more occurrences of the term blood. And at least for me, there is this oddness, this foreignness, that when I see this word used so much, blood, blood, blood. And even I think if we're not careful... And maybe we even talked a little about it this morning when we talked about translations. We can be singing songs. There's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. That sounds odd. How many songs do we have that we sing about the blood, the blood, the blood, hallelujah, the, the blood. It's kind of weird if you think about it. That if a non, I'm not saying it's wrong, but if a non-believer came in and had never had ever, ever, ever heard of Christianity or any other religion ever, and they heard this power in the blood, this power, what are they might freak out. What are you guys talking about? Blood. So in that sense, there is a type of oddness or foreignness that that might be here if we're not careful. But it's odd or it's foreign because we might not have the Old Testament understanding that these Hebrew Christians had. The book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew Christians that had been part of the Judaistic religion that would be offering blood sacrifices all the time. All the time. And in the Old Testament, and also in the New, when we see this term that's used, blood, blood, and him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, the idea of blood 
and association with Christ. It even says later, right, in this section that we read, it talks about, in verse 14, the blood of Christ. Do you think that would strike, in one sense, the, the Jew odd? I think it would. That the Messiah would bleed? I think recent, I'm not, I'm not sure how long ago, but Ben Shapiro was doing an interview with, I forget, I forgot the apologist's name, uh, a, a Christian apologist, maybe it was William Craig Lane. And Ben Shapiro said as a Jew, a, a Jew would not understand this suffering Messiah that would die. Right? A Messiah that would suffer, that would bleed, and, and a Jew's mind, in a sense, would be a contradiction. Because, further, this idea of blood is not just that the Messiah pricked his finger, but that he what? He died. And not just that he died, but he died violently. And not just that he died violently, but he died a violent, sacrificial death. A death on a cross, which itself was considered to be accursed. So the term blood, yes, in the Old Testament, it talks about that in blood is the life, but also together with that, the idea of blood is this a, a violent, taken away, giving up of life, especially and the idea of a sacrifice that's being given to please God. And so when we sing about the blood, there's power in the blood, there's power in the blood, we're not talking about that Jesus bled, and so if you take that blood and you and you wipe it on your body, that somehow you get power. But rather, it's that Jesus willingly offered himself as a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for your sins. That you justly deserve to go to hell for and receive the eternal wrath of God. Instead, Jesus Christ willingly, the Son of God, became man, lived a perfect life, offered himself up on the cross, dying a horrible death, being separated from God the Father for however long, he did that for sinners that would trust him. That is where their power is at. And that sacrificial, substitutionary death of the promised Messiah, the Son of God. So with that being said, when we look at this section, chapter 9 all the way to 1018, I think we can summarize it this way. Build your faith upon the blood work of Jesus Christ so you can go forward and not ever forsake Christ. For us to, in this day and age, and since A.D. 100, since really the, the beginning, is we have to build our faith upon that sacrificial work of death on the cross that Christ did. We build our faith on that, and that's how we go forward and never, ever forsake Christ. And it's interesting, as I... Look here at the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews starts with, don't neglect a great salvation. 
Even chapter 3, verse 19, don't be like unbelieving Israel. They didn't enter the promised land because of their unbelief. Continue on in Christ. Never let go, chapter 4, verse 14. And then it begins to talk about this atonement work of Jesus. And then chapter 11 talks about faith. And then chapter 12 talks about looking at Jesus. That is, that I think what you have here... And and this section is we need to place this faith which we are to have. We look at Christ and we do this based upon the the blood work, the the sacrificial death, the cross work that Jesus made. We, We never advance in our Christianity past the cross. Ever. And once we we begin to avoid or neglect believe that we're past that, that's really when we begin to go backwards and might be in danger of forsaking him, becoming apostate. So we always want to build our faith on this violent, sacrificial death that Jesus made, the Son of God made for all those that will trust him. This atonement. Now, first, then, there are these building blocks, I think, at least at least three. There, there could be more, but we're going to look at at least at three building blocks, several, that the Spirit of God makes about building up this faith. And the first one is here in verses 1 through 14, and it's this. Build your faith upon this blood work of Jesus Christ, upon his atonement, by glorifying it to deal with your guilt. You deal with your guilt by glorifying the cross work of Jesus. Especially as you seek to serve Him, as you're seeking Him and serving Him in church and with your family and your neighborhood and your friends, and you sin and you feel tremendous guilt about that sin, what do you do? Do you stop going to church? Well, chapter 10 says, don't forsake the assembling together. Do you not read your Bible? Well, the Bible itself says, hide the word of God in your heart. Do you not pray? Well, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, draw near always, uh, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We always need to be in the word, be in prayer, and, and be going to church. How do we respond when we are feeling guilty about our sin? We glorify in the cross work of Jesus. And so it could have been that these believers, certainly they had been tempted to forsake Christ, and they're feeling guilt about that. And it seems that they're being encouraged to, to, to pray, to be in the Word, Hebrews 4, 12, and even to go to church. And perhaps they were tempted, well, I, I've been sinning, and... Because I've sinned so bad, maybe I need to go back again and offer more Old Testament sacrifices. We might be tempted. Maybe I need to go to a Catholic Mass. Maybe I need to read five new Christian books this week. Maybe I need to have a two-hour quiet time. But what this section is saying here is to get right with God, we glory in that cross work of Jesus. 
So first, this involves Christ's atonement for sin. We value Christ's atonement for sin as priceless. How do we glory in this cross work of Jesus so we can build our faith upon the cross work of Jesus Christ? By valuing this work of Christ as absolutely priceless. Now, if you look at chapter 9, verse 1, notice it says, now even. And then if you go all the way to verse 11, it says, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come. In Greek, this is mende, mende, M-E-N is one word, day is D-E, a second word. Verse 1 has the men, and then later in verse 11, you have the day. This is a, a technical way in Greek to say on one hand this, but on the other hand, this way. They could have at least put that maybe in the margin when it says in verse 1, now even the first covenant, the, the idea, the, the sense behind that is on one hand, the first covenant had regulations of divine worship, and it goes through in some detail, though it says it's not in detail, it, it goes through in some detail about the Old Testament system. And then verse 11, but on the other hand, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, and then note verse 14, how much more with the blood of Christ? And it even talks about this eternal redemption in verse 12. So on the one hand, the Old Testament system had a a built-in God-ordained purpose, but on the other hand, Christ brought something infinitely more valuable. And so right away, at the very beginning, we are encouraged, like the Hebrew Christians, to place ultimate value upon the cross work of Jesus Christ. Basically, the Spirit of God is telling the Hebrew Christians, why would you leave Christ for something of lesser value? It'd be like trading rocks in a garden for diamonds. If a blind man came to you, and let's say you had diamonds in your hand, and if a blind man came to you and he said, please take these these pebbles, and I will trade them for your diamonds, would you take those pebbles? Probably not. The pebbles might weigh more, but that person doesn't know the value of the diamonds. And it's this way in chapter 9. Why would you take something of lesser value? That's what he's saying to us. That's what he's saying to these Hebrew Christians. Think of Galatians 6, verse 14. Remember what Paul says there? He would boast and glory in what? In the cross of Jesus Christ. Even if you were to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, The Apostle Paul, when he was preaching, what was his constant message? What was he determined to know? Verse 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There is this almost obsession that we see in the New Testament with that the Son of God, the Messiah, died this substitutionary atonement on the cross, which would have been very bloody. It was very violent. 
And he did that, satisfying the wrath of God for you and I. Even in First Peter, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, more valuable than gold or silver. So you have this really, yes, in the Old Testament, but especially in the New Testament, this value that's placed on something which, in one sense, is what? Gruesome. Right? The cross is gruesome. That's why the Jews considered it blasphemous. You know, it's cursed. Cursed is anyone that hangs on a tree. Because there is the wrath of God. There is shame. But yet, that's what Christ did for his people. And so right away in this text, we're called to have this value that we place on the cross. That there should be this obsession. Again, how much more worthy is the idea in verse 14? How much more worthy is this blood of Christ in the work that it does. Now, second, in order to really glorify in it means that we value this substitutionary death of Christ for sinners more precious than health or wealth because it deals with our eternal redemption. But second, it also involves understanding. We need to understand these verses. Verses... uh, 2 through 14, we need to understand this tabernacle and the golden altar of incense and all these different things. There needs to be, in a sense, a doctrinization of what all this means to us. We must educate our minds and inform our spirits of what all this means. It's here in the text. The Spirit of God has given us these details. Verse 5 at the end says, but of these things we cannot speak in detail, which is kind of funny because there's a lot of detail here. However, there is even more detail that books and commentaries go in on each item or furniture that's here in the tabernacle. So what I'm going to seek to do, things that we should uh, understand is I'm going to seek to give, I think it's 11, 11 points. Uh, as brief and as quick as I can. And I, I could have made it more simple, but I want us to get the idea of regulations, of this minuteness, of this again and again and again and again. And having to do this over and over, and that the separate, separatedness and utter, kind of almost oddness of it. That is that God is separate from us. And you'll understand this, I think, as I go through these points. Now again, it's not that the Old Testament or the old sacrificial system was bad, but remember what we said last week. It could be compared to a tricycle to a bicycle. Are the Wright Brothers' airplane compared to a 747, comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament? Now, let me give you these 11 points which will uh, seek to clarify 
verses 2 through 14. So number one. If you look here in verse 2, it's talking about the tabernacle and not the temple. Why is that? Nobody knows. Everybody has suggestions, but nobody knows for certain. It's talking about the tabernacle, which was basically a tent. It could be, could be, again, the text doesn't say, but the actual first temple, where was it? It was gone. It had been destroyed. And there there had been a second temple built. So maybe it's just saying that the tabernacle, even though it too is temporary, it wasn't destroyed. Even the first temple itself was actually temporary because it's also destroyed. And so maybe right away there is this sense in which the Spirit of God is saying, whether you have the temple or whether you have the tabernacle, both and the providence of God are temporary. But there is a more lasting tabernacle and sanctuary, and that's heaven. Number two. Talking about the tabernacle, it was a big tent that had an, an inside tent, or it was a big tent that had a veil or a big curtain almost in the middle. So it it was a big tent that basically had two rooms. And you can see this in verse 2. In verse 3, behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, another tent, which is called the Holy of Holies. So this is number 2. You have a big tent with two sections. The, The first section is called the Holy Place. And the second section that had a veil, a curtain separating it, was the Holy of Holies. Number three. There was an outer courtyard where men could bring their sacrifices to the priests, but they couldn't even go into the tent. They couldn't go into the the first part of the tent, and certainly not the second part of the tent. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, that second part of the tent, and then he could only do that once a year. It seems that it was a graphic sketch of God that was giving this picture of God's separateness, of God's holiness of his untouchableness unless sin was dealt with. Number four, you'll note it talks about this lampstand in verse two in the sacred bread. Number four, the lampstand seems to be pointing to Christ as light. John 9, 5 says that he is light and the light of the world as does John 1, 8 through 9. And it could be that here, when it talks about this bread, that is, it's, these items are pointing to the Messiah to come, the Son of God. Jesus is called the bread of life in John 6, 35 to 1. We need most basically as the necessity of our very being is Jesus Christ. It could be pointing to that. 
Further, number five, the Holy of Holies, you can see in verse three and verse four, has this golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. That's all covered with gold. Now, most likely, this altar of incense is representing the, the prayer for worship of the saints that's going up to God. You can write down Revelation 8.3 might be a New Testament example of that. And this altar of incense is just reminding the believers of prayers up to God. And so there's some unclarity about is this altar of incense in the Holy of Holies or is it in the first part of the tabernacle? Of course, there you have the Ark of the Covenant, basically a four-foot, at least in length, long rectangle box where God would manifest his glory, Exodus 25, 22. And on top of it, it had the cherubim with the wings going uh, toward the center. You can think of, maybe you want to write down Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. Remember when Isaiah saw the glory of God and he said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The Ark of the Covenant is a a type of a physical object that is similar to Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. That might be a way to to think of it. And inside it, the Ark of the Covenant, it, it talks what was there. This golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's rod, and the tables of the covenant. You can think precepts, power, and provision. Ten Commandments being his precepts. Aaron's staff, that's the power of God, you know, the, the miracles of God. Manna, the provision of God. Some say that the Ark of the Covenant was a type of a memory chest. For Israel, the high priest and the priest remember God's provision, his power, and his precepts. And the top of the lid, the, the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the, the lid was called the mercy seat. And in Greek, it's translated the place of propitiation. And once a year, the high priest would come in and sprinkle that top lid with the blood. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Now, number six, as I noted, gold. You can see here in verse four, gold, 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 gold. Why is it all gold? And even the, the, the temple itself was all done out in gold. Why? I think it's to point out that the value of what is being done. It's very valuable and very beautiful. Number seven. Note that verse one talks about regulations, and even later on, it talks about the the regulations. Why is it talking this way? Well, there is this theme, again, of this is where God's presence dwells. At times, right, God's presence, his 
the Shekinah glory would manifest itself in the temple and that over the cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant. But yet, the high priest could only go there and be in that presence of once a year. The, the priest couldn't go into the Holy of Holies and the people of God couldn't even go into that tabernacle. Signifying, making clear that to be in the presence of God is a very serious deal and not acceptable for anybody except the high priest and then only once a year. Number eight, priests had to do this daily. The high priest would do it yearly, but the priest had to go into the temple and replace the bread and redo the altar of incense and all these different things. And you can see that in verse six, continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the, the divine worship. They were doing this all the time, all, all, all the time, continuously bringing in all, all the sacrifices that, that had to be done for all the sins of the people, all the time. Now, the number nine, the high priest had to offer the blood sacrifice the people's sins and his own, especially those sins committed in ignorance. You know, they, they didn't know. And Leviticus 16, 2 says that if, the high priest comes in any other day and doesn't do the sacrifice right, what's going to happen to him? He's going to die. So tradition says that at different times, they might tie a rope around the high priest and send him in and even put a bell on him so if he died, they could pull him back out. What's being taught is, again, it was a very serious and scary thought to be in the presence of God. That's why Isaiah, when he said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why did he say, I'm a man that that, that is ruined. I'm completely undone. Habakkuk says that God is so holy, he can't look at sin. Number 10, the Holy Spirit is making it clear that this is the way to the very presence of God until a certain time when the tabernacle is gone. And perhaps this is when Christ died and that that veil, that curtain was ripped. You can look at verse 9. We'll start at verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying, and it's the idea, uh, the Holy Spirit is clarifying this, the way into the holy place, that is the, the holy of holies, this very presence of God has not yet been disclosed when the outer tabernacle is still standing. When, when there is this curtain that's separating the first part of the, of the tent and to the second part of the tent, then the way yet really hasn't been clarified or, or been made known. But it was when Christ died and that veil, that curtain was ripped in two. Now verse 9 is interesting because it says, which is a symbol. And again, we talked a little bit about this this morning. This word symbol, it's the Greek word, parabole. 
which we get our English word parable. It's a transliteration. So it's saying that the, the tabernacle, how it was used, and even how that, that curtain, that veil had been ripped at the death of Christ, that is a type of metaphor that's teaching a lesson. That the old system had fulfilled its purpose. And now there is a new system, a the new covenant established by Christ. And so that's why in verse 9 it says, Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect and conscience. Since they only relate to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation, until a time when the, the real thing is going to happen. Now, if you read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, certainly David had a guilty conscience and it was cleansed. What verse 9 and 10, I believe, are saying is David, his conscience in the Old Testament, every Old Testament saint, their conscience could be cleansed by anticipation of what God would do. But in the New Testament, our conscience can be cleansed and made new based upon what the Son of God has already achieved. The breadth and depth of a clear, clean conscience can be greater in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, because because Christ has already died. It's not just anticipating, hoping, but rather even... More than that, there is this taking refuge and relying and trusting upon what was already done. I believe that's what is being said. Now, number 11. How do you feel? Do you feel bored? Do you feel confused? What was point number six? What was point number five? Do you feel tired? I didn't get down all the points. Tom, give me number three. I know one of you might come up. Tom, can you give me all those 11 points again? No, I'm not going to. And I would recommend you don't listen to it again. Don't listen to it again. I think what is being done is, in a sense, remember it says the Holy Spirit is clarifying that this is a parable. It's true and it's right and it's good. The Old Testament isn't bad. But it was teaching that to get to God is impossible. It's impossible for anybody to really get to God. The high priest could only do it once a year, and then he had to be very careful, and he himself had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. But when Christ appeared, verse 11 He brought something that was much better. The Old Testament and the old sacrificial system was laying the groundwork. There was teaching that for us to approach God, there had to be a death. The wages of sin is death. And that had to be a spotless lamb of God. But even the high priest himself 
was sinful, so even he cannot be a true, true high priest that could take away sin. He had to offer a sacrifice even for his own sin. But there was a great high priest, you can see that in verse 11, who entered into a perfect tabernacle. And he himself was the sacrifice. And so he obtained eternal redemption for us. So I think that when you think of those first ten points that, that I gave, there should be, I think, this, I'm, I'm glad that I wasn't part of that system. That would be difficult. Not to be in the presence of God. But now, I want to give you six other points. But these are good points. These should not feel uh, tired or boring or laborious or, or hopeless or what, what. These should be actually... Um, points that cause us to to glory in the cross work of Christ. Okay? So now, if you made those ten points, I'm not saying you should do this, but maybe you just want to put like a line through it. Praise God! Exit out! Why? Because it's not the same. Jesus fulfilled all those different things. You don't have to do all that. It's already been done by Christ. Just cross it out! Don't cross out the text. Cross it out on your note. Just just exit out and say, praise God. And that's what this text is saying. Number one, then. I already said this, but first, something better has come. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, what are these good things to come? We're going to see that from verses 15 to chapter 10, verse 18. That's what the rest of this section is going to teach us. All these good things that come out of this atonement, this Christ death averting, satisfying the wrath of God for us. Good things come from his work. And all that's going to be detailed. That's number one. Number two. Christ came through heaven. He didn't go through a a, a tent made of fabric that can disappear, that can burn. Christ, when he made his offering of himself, and in a sense took that offering himself and ascended up into heaven, it wasn't like he was going into this man-made gold temple that could be destroyed and robbed by pagans. No. Remember 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that your salvation is undefiled? It can't be stolen. It's protected by God in heaven? That's what this is talking about in verse 11. It's not just that Christ put himself in this man-made place where his work, what he did, could just disappear. It's reserved, protected by God, the Father in heaven, forever. Number three. 
you can see this in verse 12 and verse 13. He himself, the sinless Son of God, gave his own blood. You can see that in verse 11. But through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having secured eternal redemption. This is really incredible. He himself suffered and didn't just suffer. He he died in the place of every single sinner that would trust him, not just averting the wrath of God, but averting the wrath of God by satisfying the wrath of God through his own death. That's why when it says his own blood, it's his own death. There's nothing again wrong with singing this power in the blood, power in the blood. But we may, if we're not careful, misunderstand that. We could sing this power in his death, this power in him being assassinated and executed by dying one of the most gruesome deaths that could ever happen. The full wrath of God upon him, satisfying God's wrath. That is where the power is. We could sing it that way, but that might take a long time to sing it that way. But that's what this phrase, his own blood, means. The prophet, priest, king, the son of God, gave his own blood. He, he died. He didn't just bleed. He bled and died. That's the idea behind his own blood. And he only had to do it how many times? One time. Because he was the sinless, perfect son of God that lived this perfect, obedient life. And I think that's even what the text means later on in in verse 14. When it says, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. That is, Jesus lived this perfect, sinless life. Not resting on his own deity, but resting upon the promises of God and trusting the Spirit of God to empower him. So he could truly be a true sacrifice. He was truly, though not denying his deity, he was truly a man, a person. He could bleed and he could die. Number four, as he achieved liberation for you and for me, for all that trust him, freedom from damnation and secured for eternal glory. That's what this means when it says obtained eternal redemption. Redemption is the idea that a, a price is paid to ransom somebody. To ransom somebody, even to ransom somebody off the slave market, a price had to be paid, and it was Jesus Christ that paid that price. Didn't pay that price to Satan, the waves of sin is death. But the one that sends people to hell is God. God does that. It's God's wrath. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God by a perfect payment of his perfect life. And when he did that, he set us free for what kind of redemption? Eternal redemption. Meaning, salvation is forever. Redeem means you're redeemed forever. The security of salvation is based upon this crossed work of Jesus Christ. 
you are secured forever by His life and death and resurrection. Let me end those points right there. I've summarized the other points I was going to give. Those points right there, I, I think, are are clear enough. But get the idea of why this is being said. Again, this is being written to Hebrew Christians that were tempted to leave Christ and go back to the Old Testament system. They had believed in Jesus. They had trusted Jesus. They had made professions of faith, at least verbally. Their life didn't get easier. Their life got harder. And so they're tempted to leave Christ and go back to the Old Testament Levitical sacrificial system. So the Spirit of God is writing them and saying, why would you do that? Have you lost your mind? Have you lost your heart? Maybe we could say, Would you use a rowboat to go to Hawaii when you can fly or take a cruise ship? Not not a perfect illustration, but why would you take something that is lesser than and outdated and, and obsolete now that Christ has appeared? Rather, stick with Christ. Go with Christ. Now, we're just going to touch this briefly as we wrap up. But you can see this as he gets into verse 14. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This gets us into this third way to make much of the cross work of Christ, make much of it in such a way that it's priceless. Let me give this third way. We have said by first by valuing the cross work of Christ as utterly priceless. Second, by understanding what's going on here in the text. It's saying that Christ's appearance, his successful mission is of much, much greater worth than the Old Testament system. So why would you go back to the Old Testament system? But then number three is this. And we'll, I'll just say just a few things about it, and then we'll close. Remember the, the main point that we said is build your faith upon the blood work of Jesus Christ so you can go forward in the faith and not fall back. And that involves these building blocks. There's at least three of them. This first one is you glorify in it to deal with your guilt. That is, you you glorify, you make much of this substitutionary, violent atonement that Jesus made. Are you going to say blood work or, or, or death work or substitutionary work? You, you make much of it. But then when this passage, when this section ends, it ends talking about it, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So then let me say this third subpoint this way. This involves getting clean to serve, not serving to get clean. And I think this is really where this section heads, and, and I hope you, you heard as we end. 
This involves getting clean to serve, not serve to get to get clean. There can be within Christianity, and I think we can all be tempted this way, is that when we sin, there can be, now what do I need to do in order to get right with God and have my conscience cleansed? Maybe I need to evangelize more. I'm going to read, instead of reading one chapter a day, I'm going to read two chapters a day of the Bible. I'm not just going to go to church just for the the sermon. I'm going to go for Sunday school. I'm going to go for sermon. I'm going to go to the prayer meeting. And I'm also going to go to the men's meeting. I'm going to go to to the women's. Anytime they have a meeting, I'm going to be there. And I'm not going to watch TV ever again. Ever. Except football. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it ever again. And we make all of these type of ways that if I do this, 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 and this, and this, and this, even, even as a Christian, we can be tempted. I'll do this, 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 and then I'll be acceptable to God. It's not true. That's a lie. And then you get involved in all of that, and your conscience really isn't cleansed, and you're not serving out of gratitude, but out of guilt. And so you do what it says in verse 14, your works are dead. Because you're not serving out of gratitude of, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you that you did all the work that's necessary to to satisfy God, Jesus. That all I have to do is say, Lord, I'm guilty, I'm a sinner, please forgive me. Because your atonement is so great, it's so wonderful, make much of your name by forgiving me. And even in Psalm 25, verse 11, David says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. That's the way we get our conscience cleansed. It's not by doing all these different duties and doing all these different things and say, Lord, I'm going to do all these different things, and then really I'll be right with you. There's nothing that I can do to make myself right with God. Christ already did all that is necessary for you and I to be right with God. I believe in on Him. I take refuge in Him. You have to believe on Jesus. You take refuge in Him. If I confess my sins, isn't it odd? If I confess my sins, He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin. What does that mean? He's faithful and just. He's going to be faithful to his own promise and to the work that he did on the cross to wipe away all my sins. Meaning, again, I don't serve to get clean. I clean by going to the cross, by talking to Jesus, by saying, Lord, I'm the worst sinner I know. Please forgive me, Lord. I need your mercy. I need your grace. Thank you for that forgiveness in Christ. Thank you, Lord. Amen. And then I'm clean. This is what the New Testament teaches about this cross work of Christ. We make much, make more of the cross work of Jesus than your sin. And whenever you feel the guilt, the guilt of your sin, take the opportunity to glorify the cross work of Jesus. If you feel guilty, it's probably because you blew it and you sinned. Take the opportunity then to glorify much and the forgiving power 
of God through what Christ achieved on the cross. Satan, when you sin, Satan wants to confuse you, he wants to crush you, and to despair. Christ wants to cleanse you, to forgive you, and to restore you, and to give you peace. Satan wants you to go backward, Christ wants you to go forward. The way that you go forward is the glory and the redemption that Jesus has provided by grace alone, through faith alone. For his glory alone. Lord, we do give you the glory alone. May we have an understanding, Lord, of this cross work that you have provided for us. We are unworthy, Lord. We are the worst sinners that we know. But we glory in you and we pray that you would make much of your name by forgiving us our great sin. Your your grace and your work of redemption is greater than our greatest sin. And so we give you the glory for Christ's sake. Amen.